0: Welcome back. It is Chapter 2, still Week 1 in Principles of Psychology from Queen's University. I'm sharing my journey with you as I learn this course, and hopefully we can help out each other. So remember to leave some comments if you have some helpful advice that will help other students reach their goals in passing this course and really getting an understanding of psychology. It is a fascinating field. Well, let's not waste any more time. Here we go with chapter two, why science? Here we go, so why science? Why are we talking about this? Well, scientific research has been one of the great drivers of progress in human history and the dramatic changes we have seen during the past century are due primarily to scientific findings. Modern medicine, electronics, automobiles, jets, birth control, a host of helpful inventions. Psychologists believe that scientific method can be used in the behavioral domain to understand and improve the world. Although psychology trails the biological and physical sciences in terms of progress, We are optimistic based on discoveries to date that scientific psychology will make many important discoveries that can benefit humanity. So this module is going to outline the characteristics of the science and the promise it holds for understanding behavior. The ethics that guide psychological research are briefly described, and it concludes with the reasons you should learn about scientific psychology. This is where the uh, mystic has finally reached a point of science. We're combining now. There's much more proof on positive thinking, on mindset, on motivation, on mental health. So, psychology is a science. So, you're becoming a scientist today, right? It's very exciting. We're going to go through the learning objectives and really focus on that because. That is where the course material will have to be understand, understood the most. So let's begin. Describe how scientific research has changed the world. Well, <laughs> this is really a fascinating start to this chapter, because it talks about how you may have heard about Mother Teresa, how you may have heard about Albert Schweitzer, but have you heard about Edward Jenner, Norman Borlaug, or Fritz Haber? Yes. So. We know Mother Teresa has helped thousands of people, but did you know that uh, Jenner, Borlaug and Haber were scientists who research, discovered, saved millions, even billions of lives? Jenner is a father of immunology because he was the first to conceive of and test vaccinations. Now, you may be pro-vaccination, you may be anti-vaccination. That's not the point of discussing this in this course. The point is, without certain vaccinations, we would still have problems with typhoid, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, you name it. Science has helped us live better lives whether it's through our lifestyle that we no longer have to walk everywhere or through having better nutrition and schooling and medical advances and technological advances i mean think about it this is amazing we're we're here online together you could be anywhere in the world and we're having conversation about psychology well, let's begin with what is science, and because and the reason I want to do that is because we've talked briefly about how research has changed the world, and the next learning objective is the key characteristics of the scientific approach, and it's a lot of observation. So how has it changed? <laughs> well, here's an interesting part, and I'm going to read between the lines here. Ancient people were more likely to believe in magical and supernatural explanations for natural phenomena such as solar eclipses or thunderstorms. By contrast, scientifically minded people try to figure out the natural world through testing and observation. Specifically, science is the use of systematic observation in order to acquire knowledge. So that is the careful observation of the natural world with the aim of better understanding it. Observations provide the data that allow scientists to track, tally, or otherwise organize information about the natural world. We talked briefly in the first chapter about the empirical methods, and that is something where you can actually measure. Approaches to inquiry that tie to actual measurement and observations. And it's a wonderful way to learn about the physical and biological world. Science is not magic. It will not solve all human problems and might not answer all our questions about behavior, but it is a way to approach it. And it's super exciting that psychology is being approached this way now so we can learn more about the human mind, about mental health. Now, as this course goes on, I'm just going to say briefly when you see a highlighted word, that's an important word. And I am going to have an extra bonus chapter, well, not chapter, really, an episode that just talks about the definitions that you can listen to while you're sleeping or something. I don't know. Maybe walking the dog, whatever works for you. (laughs) So the systematic observation is the core of science. It's how scientists record and observe the world observation leads to hypotheses we can test and a hypothesis is a logical idea that can be tested it's just an idea your hypothesis is an idea but you want to test it you want to put it to the test and then theories a group of closely related phenomena or observations these are stated in that way because they can be tested for example, you might make the claim that candles made of paraffin wax burn more slowly than do candles of exact same size and shape from beeswax. This claim can be readily tested by timing the burning speeds of candles made from these materials. That's a really simple example, but it gives you a visual now of what scientists do. They're observers of the world. They change people's environments, they change different things to see how it impacts, and then they measure it. Science is also democratic. People in ancient times may have been willing to accept the views of their kings or pharaohs as absolute truths. These days, however, people are more likely to want to be able to form their own opinions and debate conclusions. Scientists are skeptical and have open discussions about their observations and theories. These debates often occur as scientists publish Competing findings with the idea that the best data will win the argument. So, in that, just think about that. It's it's a collaborative discussion about findings and scientific papers are. I'm going to say I find them a little difficult to read, but I'm getting used to it. But then you write your first paper, and then somebody reviews it. That's a fun goal to have, I think, and it's really. So it's not set in stone, and you're not just told, hey, believe this because I say so. (laughs) That's where, you know, you take the approach like a little, oh, I'm going to do an experiment on myself. Who knows, right? And science is cumulative. We can learn the important truths discovered by earlier scientists and build on them. Any physics student today knows more about physics than Sir Isaac Newton did, even though Newton was possibly the most brilliant physicist of all time. Think about that one. A crucial aspect of scientific progress is that after we learn of earlier advances, we can build upon them and move farther along the path of knowledge. The next learning objective is to discuss a few of the benefits as well as problems that have been created by science. I thought that was quite a quite fascinating. So even in modern times many people are skeptical that psychology is really a science. To some degree this doubt stems from the fact that many psychological phenomena such as depression, intelligence and prejudice do not seem to be directly observable in the same way that we can observe the changes in ocean tides or the speed of light. Because thoughts and feelings are invisible many earlier psycho- psychological researchers chose to focus on behavior. You might have noticed that some people act in a friendly and outgoing way, while others appear to be shy and withdrawn. If you have made these types of observations, then you are acting just like early psychologists who use behavior to draw inferences about various types of personalities. By using behavioral measures and rating scales, it is possible to measure thoughts and feelings. This is similar to how other researchers explore invisible phenomena as the way that educators measure academic performance or economists measure quality of life. Interestingly enough, one important pioneering research was Francis Galton, a cousin of Charles Darwin, who lived in England during the 1800s. Galton used patches of color to test people's ability to distinguish between them. He also invented the self report questionnaire in which people offered their own expressed judgments or opinions on various matters. Galton was able to use self reports to examine, among other things, people's different ability to accurately judge distances. Although he lacked a modern understanding of genetics, Galton also had the idea that scientists could look at behaviors of identical and fraternal twins to estimate the degree to which genetic and social factors contribute to personality? Puzzling issue we currently refer to as the nature-nurture question. What I love about that is there's an entire chapter dedicated to nature and nurture, and it really gives us a good insight to twins and how they do hold a bit of a key there. In modern times, psychology has become more sophisticated. Researchers now use better measures. More sophisticated study designs and better statistical analysis to explore human nature. Simply take the example of studying the emotion of happiness. How would you go about studying happiness? One straightforward method is to simply ask people about their happiness and to have them use a numbered scale to indicate their feelings. There are, of course, several problems with this. People might lie about their happiness, (laughs) might not be able to accurately report on their own happiness, or might not use the numerical scale in the same way. With these limitations in mind, modern psychologists employ a wide range of methods to assess happiness. So this is a fascinating field. Like, how do you assess somebody's happiness? How do you know they're telling the truth? Well, it goes on to say they use, for instance, peer report measures in which they ask close friends and family members about the happiness of a target individual. Researchers can then compare these ratings to the self-report rating and check for discrepancies. Researchers also use memory measures with the idea that dispositionally positive people have an easier time recalling pleasant events and negative people have an easier time recalling unpleasant events. Hmm. Modern psychologists even use biological measures such as saliva, cortisol samples. Yes, cortisol is a stress related hormone, or fMRI images. That's images of the brain, we'll do a whole chapter on as well. And the left, which is the left prefrontal cortex, is one area of the brain activity associated with good moods. I like that. I don't know about peer report measures. Because nobody knows you, but you. People can look at you and think they know what's going on in your mind, but they don't really know. So I'd I'd like to read more about that. Despite our various advances, it is true that psychology is still a very young science. While physics and chemistry are hundreds of years old, psychology is barely 150 years old, and most of our major findings have occurred only in the last 60 years. There are legitimate limits to psychological science, but it is science nonetheless. Yes, I like that. So that is a good starting point. It's 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 laid the groundwork for us for for what what is to come. The next uh, learning objective is to describe several ways that psychological science has improved the world. Now. Psychological science is useful for creating interventions that will help people live better lives. A growing body of research is concerned with determining which therapies are the most and least effective for the treatment of psychological disorders. For example, many studies have shown that cognitive behavior therapy can help many people suffering from depression and anxiety disorders. In contrast, research reveals that some types of therapies actually might be harmful on average. Hmm, so how do you know what's what? Well, in organizational psychology, a number of psychological interventions have found by researchers to produce greater productivity and satisfaction in the workplace. Hmm, human factor engineers have greatly increased the safety and utility of the products we use. For example, human factor psychologist Alphonse Champagne and other researchers redesigned the cockpit controls of aircraft to make them less confusing and easier to respond to. And this led to a decrease in pilot errors and crashes. Well, a plane's probably the safest place you can be to travel, but it sounds like it's even safer now, isn't it? Forensic scientists have made courtroom decisions more valid. We all know the famous cases of imprisoned persons who have been exonerated because of DNA evidence. Equally dramatic cases hinge on psychological findings. For instance, psychologist Elizabeth Loftus has conducted research demonstrating the limits and unreliability of eyewitness testimony and memory. Thus, psychological findings are having practical importance in the world outside the laboratory. Psychological science has experienced enough success to demonstrate that it works, but there remains a huge amount to be learned. And this is interesting about the use of DNA. I read recently of a fellow who was in prison for the last 30 years because he was wrongfully convicted and DNA finally freed him. Why well, it took 30 years, I'm not sure. But the long and the short of it is he was asked, you know, oh, how do you feel now that you're free? And he says, I set my mind to understand this happened for a reason and I don't know what that reason is but in hindsight, I will know and I will move my life forward. I would have loved to know what he was reading, what he was doing for the last 30 years as he was waiting to be freed. You know, that's a strong mind. He's organized his mind. Sort of like Nelson Mandela. Same situation, but when he was free, he's like, "Yep, I'm a stronger person because of it." It's 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 amazing how well we can control our mind and tell it what to do. That's a whole other chapter, though. So we'll just keep going. <laughs> and the next learning guideline is to describe a number of the ethical guidelines. psychologists follow. Yes, we can't be treated like little rats now, can we? Psychology differs somewhat from the natural sciences, such as chemistry, in that researchers conduct studies with human research participants. Because of this, there is a natural tendency to want to guard research participants against potential psychological harm. For example, it might be interesting to see how people handle ridicule, but it might not be advisable to ridicule research participants. So scientific psychologists follow a specific set of guidelines for research known as a code of ethics. There are extensive ethical guidelines for how human participants should be treated in psychological research. So here's a few highlights. Informed consent. In general, people should know when they are involved in research and understand what will happen to them during study. It should be given a free choice as to whether to participate. Informed consent. Next is confidentiality. Information that researchers learn about individual participants should not be made public without the consent of the individual. Confidentiality. Next is privacy. Researchers should not make observations of people in private places, such as their bedrooms, without their knowledge and consent. Researchers should not seek confidential information from others, such as school authorities, without consent of the participant or their guardian. Privacy. Next is benefits. Researchers should consider the benefits of their proposed research and weigh these against potential risks to the participants. People who participate in psychological studies should be exposed to risk-only if they fully understand these risks and only if they likely benefit clearly outweighs the risks so you weigh the benefits deception is next some researchers need to deceive participants in order to hide the true nature of the study this is typically done to prevent participants from modifying their behavior in unnatural ways researchers are required to debrief their participants after they have completed the study Debriefing is an opportunity to educate participants about the true nature of the study. Yes, well, and that is where it's different in the psychological studies, because you can do a a different type of study for medication, for example, called the placebo effect, where you may be taking a new drug to help you with a certain illness, or you might be taking a sugar pill. And that's where it gets really interesting because if you're taking the sugar pill and you're improving, that shows that you in fact are a placebo and you can control yourself. Another topic for later. So, in in summary, for chapter two, on uh, what <laughs> what is science? Right? Why learn about scientific psychology? Um, It's to understand ourselves, other people and groups, to be able to influence others, for example, in socializing children or motivating employees, to learn how to better help others and improve the world, for example, by doing effective psychotherapy, to learn a skill that will lead to a profession, such as being a social worker or a professor, to learn how to evaluate the research claims you hear or read about because it is interesting, challenging, and fun. People want to learn about psychology because this is exciting in itself, really understanding human nature, regardless of other positive outcomes it might have. Why do we see movies? Because they're fun and exciting, and we need no other reason. Thus, one good reason to study psychology is it can be rewarding in itself. So in conclusion for this chapter, The science of psychology is an exciting adventure, whether you will become a scientific psychologist, an applied psychologist, or an educated person who knows about psychological research. This field can influence your life and provide fun, rewards, and understanding. The hope is you learn a lot from the modules in this text and also that you enjoy the experience. I'm really loving to learn about psychology and neuroscience And I know it's a lot to digest, but you deserve this and you will succeed. And I'm really hoping that you share some comments in, uh, you know, if you're watching this on YouTube, share your ideas, share with others, Uh, you know, let's, let's get this community talking about psychology and how amazing it is to learn about human nature in order to live a more inspired life. So make sure you hit that subscribe button. You don't want to mix the next chapter in our journey through Psych 100 at Queen's University.